take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. And we are going to, Lord willing, finish up the introduction to this great book that we've launched into, and it seems like we're having a hard time getting out of the first seven verses, but uh, hopefully we'll make some headway this morning. Let's reread this text, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we've just sung of your faithfulness, and uh, there's no greater display of your faithfulness than your faithful word. Lord, you've given us this book in which you've made many, many promises. Lord, that we know you have fulfilled and you will fulfill. Lord, we know that your word is faithful and true, that what you have said will happen, and Lord, thank you for this trustworthy standard, this faithful standard that you entrusted to us so that we would know what to believe and we would know how to live, and I pray that you would, by your grace, help us to be faithful to you, and faithful to your word, even as you have been to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the most stimulating books that I've ever read is called Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic, by a man named Walter Chantry, who's a pastor over in Pennsylvania. And uh, in this book, he presents a powerful argument that much of what passes for the gospel in our day is not the gospel. He compares the, the message and the methods of a lot of today's evangelism uh, with Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, Mark chapter 10. Um, and he does that to expose how the gospel being preached today falls far short of the gospel that Jesus himself preached. The gospel in our day is often reduced to, to a few facts about Jesus that if, if one simply believes, they can be saved and go to heaven. Jesus, on the other hand, when asked by the rich young ruler, really when begged by the rich young ruler, what must I do to what? Remember what he said? To inherit eternal life. What do I have to do to go to heaven when I die? Jesus took time to explain the holy character of God. That God is good and holy and he described the law of God and how we've all broken that law and how we need to repent of our sin and we need to commit our lives to follow Jesus. 
And because these essential elements of, of the gospel are often left out when, when the gospel is shared or when the gospel is preached in our day, the products of modern evangelism are often sad examples of Christianity. Many who, who, who make professions of faith in Christ continue to live like the world and they don't show any evidence of God's grace by living a, a transformed life. And yet, well-meaning pastors and evangelists give them assurance that they're on their way to heaven. And sadly, I think Satan uses a deficient gospel. Some might even call it another gospel. But let's just call it a, a deficient gospel. Satan uses it. It's a tool to deceive people and to dilute the church with people who are not truly saved. Let me just read for you the words of Walter Chantry. He asks the question, what is the gospel? It's a great question. What, what is the gospel? He says it's time to re-examine the content of the gospel most popularly, popularly preached. Evangelicals are swelling the ranks of the deluded with a perverted gospel. He says, you must ask if your church, your missionaries, your evangelists, your Sunday school teachers, and you yourself, are you preaching our Lord's gospel? Are you preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached? And, and Chantry concludes that the reason why Christianity is so weak in our day is the gospel being preached bears little resemblance to the gospel preached by Jesus. And I would add, it bears little resemblance to the gospel proclaimed by Paul here in the book of Romans. And as we've said already, Romans is the, the clearest, the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel found anywhere in God's word. And uh, Paul wrote this letter uh, to introduce himself and his ministry to the churches in Rome in order to gain their support in helping him take the gospel to Spain. And so in order for them to, to want to partner with him in the spread of the gospel, Paul knew that they needed to get to know him. Uh, he had never been there. Um, he had not met most of them. Um, but more importantly, they needed to know the gospel, um, and they needed to have the same passion for the gospel that he had to spread uh, to, 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 to the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so probably why we're having such a hard time getting out of verses 1 through 7 is because the entire 16 chapters of the book of Romans is summarized here in the first seven verses. And, and most everything that we're going to be studying uh, in, in this entire book uh, somehow is, is mentioned, at least in, in, in uh, uh, summary form here uh, in these first seven verses. And again, this is the longest introduction of any one of Paul's letters. And, and typically, Paul would simply begin a letter by introducing himself, identifying his readers, and, and, and giving a brief reading, which he does. In verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then look at verse 7 which would be typically the flow of Paul's greeting, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so typically you would simply have verses 1 and 7, uh, verse 1 and verse 7, and that would be the introduction. But you have verses 2 through 6, which we've said is a, really a digression from his introduction to elaborate on the gospel of God. 
If you haven't underlined that phrase um, in verse 1, the gospel of God, I would encourage you to do that, bracket that, um, because that is the point of the book of Romans. It's all about the gospel of God. And so he, he wants to introduce this gospel. And so we said that there are at least eight pillars of the gospel of God that he mentions here in verses 1 through 7. Um, another way to look at this would be eight foundational truths about the gospel. And uh, we started looking at this list last week. And uh, for those of you that weren't here, I just want to provide a brief review and then we'll look at the remaining uh, ones on the list that we didn't get to last week. But what are, the, what are the, the eight foundational truths about the gospel? What are the eight pillars of the gospel? First of all, the gospel is masterminded by God. The gospel is masterminded by God. It's called, Paul calls it the gospel of God. It's not the gospel of Paul or the gospel of the church. No, it's the gospel of God. And so that's the most important thing that we need to understand is that the gospel comes from God. It was his idea. He was the mastermind behind this, this grand strategy to save a world lost in sin from his wrath through faith in his son Jesus. And so Paul wanted the Romans to know that his message wasn't something that he had come up with on his own. It's not something that he made up this was revealed and entrusted to him by God himself. And the true, same is true for us. That, that when we share the gospel, we're not sharing our own ideas. We're not sharing our own opinions. And, 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 and we're not even promoting one of a, of a number of man-made religions. What we're doing when we share the gospel is completely different than when Jehovah's Witnesses or, or Mormons or... Hindus or uh, you fill in the blank, right? When they're sharing their gospel, their message of salvation, their plan of salvation is totally different. We are ambassadors for Christ and we have the privilege of telling people that even though their sin has separated them from God, God has made a way for them to be reconciled to him. So we are proclaiming the gospel, again, not of Lakeside Bible Church, but the gospel of God. And so the gospel is masterminded by God. Number two, the gospel is explained in the scriptures, he says, which he promised, verse two, beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. And again, Paul was accused of proclaiming some revolutionary new message that was different than or disconnected from Judaism. And so he wanted the believers in Rome to know that the good news he preached was not new news, it was old news. That was found in the Old Testament, and, and, and we talked about this last week, that the entire Old Testament, every section, the, the history section of the Old Testament, and the poetry section of the Old Testament, and the prophecy section of the Old Testament, all three of those sections point to the person of Christ. And so as you read through the Old Testament, it just leads you up to the person and work of Christ. And Paul is sure to point that out all throughout this letter. He, he references the Old Testament uh, in the book of Romans more than any other of his letters and more than any other book in the New Testament. And so again, Paul was just saying, hey, this is not some new novel idea that I've come up with. This is the gospel attested to by the Old Testament prophets and even the apostles of the New Testament. And so our gospel has 
has, has a firm footing in the scriptures. Number three, the gospel is centered around Jesus Christ. It seems like an obvious point, but notice he says in verse three, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Also notice uh, verse nine, for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. So Paul calls the gospel of God, and he also calls it the gospel according to his son. And so the gospel is all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus Christ was fully God. He was fully man. He was a mysterious combination of deity and humanity. And from a human perspective, Paul says he was um, born a descendant of David according to the flesh. He was the seed of David. But from a divine perspective, he was the son of God. He was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection. In other words, the, the resurrection was God's way of, of demonstrating that Jesus was indeed his son because only God can come back to life. Only, only God has the power to be resurrected. And again, not that the spirit of God would be left out, but we have the Trinity here um, in these opening verses of the book of Romans, by the resurrection of the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. The Holy Spirit is referenced here, as he will be referenced throughout this letter. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who causes all this to happen. He is the, the, the motor, if you will, behind the plan of salvation. He caused Jesus to be conceived in the womb of, of a virgin. He anointed Christ's ministry at his baptism uh, he authenticated his ministry through giving him power to do signs and wonders. He raised him from the dead. He indwelled uh, his followers according to Christ's promise to send them a helper. All of these things prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And so the gospel is centered around Christ. The gospel is also initiated by God's grace, which is the most critical aspect of the gospel, that salvation is a free gift based on God's sovereign grace rather than something that you do or that I do or that we earn by our good works. Notice in verse 5, he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Again, this whole idea of salvation being a gift, we see it in chapter 3, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So we're very familiar with Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, Paul, I think, is referencing here when he says, through whom we've received grace and apostles. He's talking about both his conversion and his commission, which happened simultaneously on the road to Damascus. And if you understand who Paul actually was, or Saul at the time, he was a terrorist. He, he was like the... The, the persecutors that we've been learning about today in the quipping hour and even in, in our worship service earlier, uh, he was one of those persecutors of the church. In fact, he was the chief persecutor of the church who the last thing on his mind was, was coming to Christ. And so what a great example of, of God's sovereign grace and election in choosing the apostle Paul. He would have never chosen to follow Christ. If left to himself, the same is true for all of us who've come to Christ. It would have never happened on our own. Why? Well, look at verse 6. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And this is a reference to God's, what's, what theologians like to call, effectual call. The call that 
the elect here, how believers are sovereignly chosen by God's grace and predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, according to Romans 8, verse 28, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these from whom He predestined, He also called, and these whom He called, He also justified, and these whom He justified, He also glorified. Again, those verses just emphasize the sovereignty of God and salvation. God is the one doing all the work. We're being acted upon. Now, that doesn't mean that we all don't hear a call to believe. We all do. The Bible says that everyone receives the general call to believe in Christ, but no one believes on their own initiative. And that's why God has to take the initiative. And so again, what we're doing is looking at salvation from God's vantage point. From our vantage point, how do we get saved? Well, we heard the gospel and we repented and we believed. We made a decision to follow Christ. We, we chose to become a Christian. That's from our vantage point. But from God's vantage point, we, we could not and would not have chosen to follow Christ unless he had already chosen us by his gracious act of sovereign will. And again, we'll get there. Romans chapter 9, verse 16 says this, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Well, then how can you blame me if I don't become a Christian? If it has nothing to do with me, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? There's a great book out there today um, titled The Potter's Freedom, which talks about the doctrine of election. Interesting read, and we'll get more into this as we go throughout this book. But that brings us to number five. The gospel is expected to result in obedience. The gospel is expected to result in, in, in obedience. This is the point we left off on last week. But notice this phrase, a uh, very interesting phrase in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostles to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. You could just simply call that obedient faith. Well, what's that mean? I thought it was just faith. What's this obedient faith? Well, obviously Paul assumed that when someone received the gospel, the general pattern of their life would go from one of disobedience to obedience. And so Paul, Paul saw no contradiction between faith and obedience. And again, don't forget, this letter is where Paul, more adamantly than anywhere else in all of his writings, insisted that salvation is by grace through faith alone, not by works. But it's in this very context that he emphasizes the necessity of obedience as the natural result of salvation, not the means of salvation, but the result of salvation. Look at chapter 10, verse 16. Listen to how he talks about the gospel being received or not received. Romans chapter 10, verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news. In other words, they, they, they heard it, but they didn't 
heed it. They didn't obey it. Chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. In other words, the good news of salvation is more than just some theological facts to believe. It's a practical life to be lived. And so the gospel demands more than just some intellectual acceptance of Jesus or some emotional experience with Jesus, but it demands a wholehearted commitment to follow and obey the Lord Jesus Christ, which he emphasizes there at the end of verse 7. Grace to you and peace from our God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, having reviewed those first five points, let's look at the final three this morning. Again, these are eight foundational truths of the gospel. Number six, the gospel is presented to the entire world. The gospel is presented to the entire world. And again, as we've already looked at the point that the gospel is initiated by God's grace, in other words, God has chosen those who will be saved. This is, I think, an appropriate balance, a very necessary balance in our understanding that the gospel is presented not just to the elect, it's, a, it's a presented to the entire world. The classic quote from Spurgeon when someone said, Spurgeon, if you believe so strongly in the doctrine of election that only the elect can be saved, then why don't you just preach to the elect? And he said, well, if you'll go pull up their shirt and show me the E on their back, I will. But I don't know. And so the gospel is presented to the entire world. Notice what it says here in verse 5. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among who? All the Gentiles. Paul was making it clear here that salvation was not just for a select group of people, i.e. the Jews. Um, Paul himself was a devout Jew who loved his fellow Jews and longed for them to be saved. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He says it again in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So Paul had a tremendous burden for his kinsmen, his fellow Jews. But at the same time, he was called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And notice how often he mentions the Gentiles. Chapter 1, verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to, also, to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. Chapter 3, verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. 
Back in chapter 9, verse 23, he did not so, he did so to make known the riches of his mercy upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Chapter 10, verse 11, for the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Chapter 11, verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Talking about the, the role of the Jews. And, and uh, are they still a part of God's plan? And what is God doing with the Jews well, he's making a way for Gentiles to be saved. And by the way, this is the way it always was, that the Jews were God's chosen people to bring the Gentiles to an understanding of the one true Jehovah God. That was the role of the Gentiles, was, or excuse me, the role of the Jews was through the Jews, uh, through the covenant of Abraham, right? A Messiah would come who would be a savior not just for the Jews, but for the entire world non-Jews, if you will. How about chapter 15, verses 8 and 9? For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. He goes on in chapter, or that same chapter, verse 10, Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles hope. In other words, this, this Messiah, this Jewish Messiah, this, this Messiah that came from the nation of Israel would be worshipped and honored and be the hope of, of more than this, the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And lastly, in verse 16 there, Paul says again, I was called to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. The point is simply this, the gospel is for everyone without exception or distinction. The call to salvation is, is universal. It goes out to the, the, to the entire world and, and heaven, according to Romans, or excuse me, excuse me Revelation 5.9, will be populated with people from every, what, tribe and people and tongue and nation. And when we look at the world today and what's happening in the world, particularly in our country when it comes to, to, to racial prejudice and racial discrimination, I mean, if you're a Christian, if you understand the gospel, there is no place for any of this. And, and uh, the issue is, is, is much deeper than the color of your skin or, or the culture in which you were raised. I mean, you look back at the, the, the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, talk about a racial divide. The ultimate racial divide was between the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and the, there was a lot of prejudice and a lot of discrimination from the, in the Jewish mindset of, of who are these Gentiles, these Gentile dogs. We're so much better than that. We're, the, we're God's chosen people, and, and, and they were just kind of had no time for the Gentiles. They totally missed the point of their existence. 
was to reach the, the Gentiles. And then when Christ came, through his death and resurrection, it says that the dividing wall, that wall, Paul describes it, that, 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 that divided the Jews from the Gentiles for centuries was obliterated. And now you've got this new group called the church. No longer Jews, no longer Gentiles. That's not how you identify yourself, white, black, you know, whatever country. You don't, you don't identify yourself any longer by the color of your skin or, or your cultural background. You identify yourself in Christ. And it doesn't matter what the color of a person's skin or the culture from which they're from. If they're in Christ, they're our brothers and sisters. And so we are part of a, of a body that's no longer, what, Jew or Gentile, male, female, black, white, you fill in the blank. And so the gospel really is the ultimate solution to all the mess we see in our country with this racial, you know, injustice and discrimination and prejudice. And, and listen, there's going to be conflict until Jesus comes back. And the only way to find unity and peace is through the gospel. And the reason why people can't get along is because they don't know Jesus. And yet when people come to know Jesus, it doesn't matter the color of their skin, right, or their cultural background, that they can sit next to each other in the church, right? Why? Because they're adopted sons and daughters of Christ. And that's all that matters. And so I think there's some practical implications to this sixth point here. The gospel is presented to the entire world. Number seven, how's this? The gospel is intended to honor the name of Christ. The gospel is intended to honor the name of Christ. Again, look back at verse five, chapter one, verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Whose namesake? The Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, it's all for His name's sake. Listen, the ultimate goal of the gospel is not that you get saved, but that God gets glorified. You might not like the sound of that at first, but I think that's the teaching of Scripture, that God cares about our salvation. He would have never masterminded this plan for us to be saved, but he cares way more about his exaltation. And I think the ultimate goal of the gospel is not that we get to go to heaven, but that we get to glorify God. And ultimately, God gets glory, and the gospel was God's way of putting on display all of his many attributes so that he could be worshipped, he could be magnified for all eternity. And so the primary reason why God masterminded the gospel was not for our sake, but for his sake and the sake of his son, Jesus. We just got done studying the book of Philippians. You'll remember this key passage in Philippians chapter 2. Because of Christ's willingness to come to leave the glories of heaven and come to earth and take on the form of a man and be killed humble himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Excuse me, so the gospel is all about the honor and glory of God and his son, Jesus Christ. I think practically we could also say, based on what Paul says here, for his name's sake, in other words, it wasn't for my name's sake, that, that Paul was not out to make a, a great name for himself, but a great name for Christ. He lived, he ministered for the glory and honor of Christ alone. He wasn't looking for people to magnify him, to glorify him, to praise him. In fact, the very last thing he says in this letter, he ends with this verse. This is Romans 16, 17. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Not to me. I don't want any glory. I want all the glory to be to God through Jesus Christ. John Stott said this in his commentary at this point, talking about how we should view the name of Christ, this name that has been given that is unlike any other name because it's the only name by which we can be saved. So what should we, how should we view How should we relate to this name of Jesus? He said this, quote, We should be jealous for the honor of Christ's name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it's ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. Sometimes that maybe is a better description of what we think about our name. We're more concerned about our name our reputation, than we are about Christ's name and his reputation. He said this, the highest of all missionary motives, in other words, what should drive us to share the gospel? He says the highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, that we've been called to go and make disciples of all nations. That's important. Neither is it love for sinners, who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is. That is a strong incentive. You have loved ones, family members who are on their way to hell. That's a compelling reason to share the gospel with them. He said, but ultimately, it's the zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the main motive for the gospel, for sharing the gospel. I love what it says in in 3 John 7. 3 John 7, a little obscure verse talking about missionaries, and it says they went out for the sake of the name. Doesn't even say what name, whose name. But we know who he's talking about. They went out for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. That's what should drive all of us, the name of Christ. We should live, we should minister, we should proclaim the gospel, share the good news of salvation for the sake of the name. Every time we go out of these doors, after being together, worshiping together, being equipped together, we, we go out of here for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, not for the sake of the name of Lakeside Bible Church, but for the sake of the name of Christ. 
And so the gospel is presented to the entire world. It's intended to honor the name of Christ. And then lastly, the gospel is enjoyed by those who embrace it. The gospel is enjoyed by those who embrace it. Look at verse 7. Again, here's his opening greeting. He finally gets to it after six verses of talking about the gospel. But he says this in verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ for their salvation enjoys these same benefits or privileges that Paul mentions here regarding the churches in Rome. What are these benefits? Well, let's just say there's three of them. Number one, number one, you are loved by God. If you have received the gospel, you embrace the gospel, you are loved by God. I love that phrase, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. Again, this doesn't just apply to the believers in the house churches in Rome. You could insert here to all who are beloved of God in Montgomery. To those who are beloved of God in Texas. Why? Because we too are the object of God's everlasting love. And as we're going to see in this letter, nothing can ever separate us from that love. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 5. He talks about that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. How is that poured out? Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, that, with that comes Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his own blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, we should exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Look at chapter 8. You're familiar with this text, I'm sure. Romans chapter 8, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 36, just as as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a blessing, beloved. That's a a privilege to be one who is beloved of God. Secondly, we're not only loved by God, we're called to be saints by God. We're called to be saints by God. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Which again, may sound funny to some of you who maybe grew up in another church tradition where the only people that were ever called saints were those that, um, you know, were dead. And uh, some church council gave them a special uh, dispensation and said that, oh, we're going to, we're going to, 
you know, categorize them as saints now. They, 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 they met the mark. Um, and and that, that sainthood is really just reserved for a, a small group of, of super spiritual people that have to be appointed by some other people in the church to, 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 to call them saints. No, listen, every true believer is a saint in God's eyes. What does that mean? Well, that word saint simply means to be set apart, a chosen one, chosen by God to be his holy possession, set apart from sin to, to serve him, to live a holy and righteous life. And again, Romans 12, 1 is the ultimate implication of the gospel, is, is therefore, in light of the mercy of God that you've received, present your body as a living and what kind of sacrifice? Holy sacrifice. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So as a believer, someone who's embraced the gospel, you are a saint. You're considered a saint in God's eyes. You've been set apart, chosen by God, set apart as his holy possession to serve him and to live for his honor and his glory. There's a third blessing here. We could just simply say you're, you're blessed by the grace and peace of God. You're not only loved by God, you're, you're, you're called to be saints by God, but you're blessed by the grace and peace of God. And again, this is Paul's standard greeting here in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 7. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He was combining the traditional phrases the Greeks and the Hebrews used to greet one another uh, when they saw each other along the road, and, and he Christianized them. Grace to you was the Greek greeting charis. And again, this, this, this blessing refers to the daily grace that God supplies us to deal with the pressures and the problems of life. And, and peace, this was the Jewish greeting, shalom. Uh, this blessing, again, refers to uh, the internal calm, the confidence that God grants us in the midst of the ever-changing circumstances of life. And so we have these dual blessings, if you will, grace and peace. Initially in Christ, we receive grace in our salvation, and we are now at peace with God, but those, those two blessings continue on throughout our lives as Christians. Notice the common source of these blessings, grace to you and peace from who? God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God was clear here through Paul that he and Jesus are on the same level. He puts them together, links them together, which means in Paul's mind, God and Jesus were the same. They were equals. And so as we look at verse 7, and really just taking apart this greeting to all who are beloved of God in Rome, call to saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just a... This is just a a hint of the many blessings that we enjoy as believers in Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul said this, Things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. We are blessed as God's beloved. These are just a few of the blessings that we enjoy in Christ. 
Some of you may have heard this story of a very wealthy man who had a, very, a valuable art collection. He also had a, an only son whom he loved dearly. And sadly, his son died at a young age unexpectedly. And the father was so grieved that he ended up dying just a few months later. And the father's will stipulated that at his death, all of his artworks were to be publicly auctioned and a painting of his son was to be auctioned first. And so on the day of the auction, the bidding began with the son's portrait. The son's portrait was put out there first. And because neither the boy nor the artist was well known, uh, a long time passed without any bids being made. Those in attendance got anxious and frustrated that the auctioneer kept trying to get someone to bid on this picture of the sun, and they began to call out, we don't care about this painting. Let's get on to the really important pieces. And finally, a long-time servant of the father timidly bid $25 for the painting of the son, which was all that he had. And when there were no other bids, the auctioneer said sold and the painting was given to the servant. And then to the shock of the crowd, the auctioneer stopped the sale. He said, the sale's over. And they're like, what are you talking about? What about all these masterpieces that we came for? And the auctioneer read the remainder of the father's will, which specified that whoever cared enough for his son to buy the painting of him would receive the rest of his estate. And so that man who bought the picture of the son got everything. I think that's a picture of how anyone who loves and receives God's son, Jesus Christ, will inherit his father's estate. Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just consider this one comment made by a faithful commentator of this text. He said, in Christ, the believers has riches beyond imagination. The Christian has life that will never end, a spring of spiritual water that will never dry up, a gift that will never be lost, a love from which he can never be separated, a calling that will never be revoked, a foundation that will never be destroyed, and an inheritance that will never diminish. Amen? That's the blessing of knowing the Son. And this is the gospel of God, but it's also the gospel concerning his Son. Turn to the last chapter of Romans. And I want you to notice how in the closing verses, Paul reiterates everything he said in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. And really the introduction and the, the conclusion serve as bookends of this letter. Notice the, how similar verses 24 through 27 are. 
that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Now he's calling it his gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. So the book of Romans is all about the gospel, the good news of salvation, which is from God, according to the scriptures, about Christ, by grace, for the entire world, unto the obedience of faith, for the blessing of his people, and ultimately for the sake of of his name and his honor and his glory. And guess what? That's the gospel that you and I get to preach. That's the gospel that you and I get to share. Somebody sent me a, a page from the Table Talk magazine, R.C. Sproul's Daily Devotion, and for October 31st, this is what it said. thought it was appropriate, fitting for our as a conclusion this morning, the author says this, Paul speaks of the gospel of God in Romans 1.1, the message of salvation that was designed by God. Not all of us are called to full-time gospel ministry, but all of us can be used by God to preach his gospel. And there is no greater honor than to be used of the Lord to carry his gospel to an unbeliever and watch him work in and through that message. As we are able, let us take part in the incredible privilege of making sure that the gospel is proclaimed. The highest calling that any of us will ever have is to be a witness to the gospel. Let us thank God for this high calling and ask him to give us the courage to proclaim the gospel where he's put us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious gospel. We thank you that you thought this up yourself for our good and ultimately for your glory. And Lord, to have been entrusted with the gospel, what a, what a high calling, what an incredible privilege. And Lord, I pray that you would um, give us the courage that we need to be faithful to this calling. It doesn't matter if we've been called into full-time ministry or not. Lord, all of us have the, the joy, the privilege, the responsibility to tell others about Christ and how they can be saved through his life and death and resurrection. And so, Lord, I pray that we would leave here today with a passion for the name of Christ and wanting his name to be exalted among the nations, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.